Father, we thank you once again for drawing us here this morning, for inviting us into your presence, and for your willingness, God, to speak to us. Uh, Father, we pray that your word would, would move in our hearts, uh, that it would point out areas of sin, that it would also show us the goodness of your Son and the power of his grace. We love you and we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. So I've got gadgets up here I'm trying to figure out. Well, in, uh, in 2005, the uh, literature professor and writer David Foster Wallace was invited to deliver the commencement address at Kenyon College. And he began his speech with a parable, and it went something like this. There were these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what in the world is water? It's a cheesy parable. But the point of Wallace's fish story is to demonstrate that often the most common, the most ubiquitous realities can be the hardest for us to see and talk about. And I think this is especially the case when it comes to culture. See, we all exist in a culture, and in many ways, our culture can almost function like water for a fish. We are so completely immersed in it that we have a hard time recognizing that it's there, that it shapes the way that we see the world and exist in it. Some of this is good, a lot of it is neutral, and a lot of it needs to be changed. And how do we know when something needs to be changed We know when something needs to be changed when we encounter something in God's word that makes us uncomfortable. The opening verse of this text, I think, will make a lot of us uncomfortable. And how does our passage begin? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Waiting for people to shake. The opening passage, or the opening verse of this passage calls us to submit. And that is going to be our focus this morning. We're going to look at two primary things from this passage. First, what submission is, and second, who we submit to. All right, so first, what is submission? Well, once again, the opening verse of our passage, let's read it together. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. These opening two words, be subject, are a translation from the Greek word hupotasso, which means to place or arrange under, to subordinate, to submit oneself. Again, the opening call is a call to submission. Now, before dealing with our discomfort with the idea of submission, let's define it. The author and Bible teacher, Jen Wilkin, defines biblical submission in this way. She says, submission is to willingly set aside your own desires or needs for the desires or needs of another. I'm going to say that one more time. To willingly set aside your own desires or needs to honor the desires or needs of another. 
Now, something worth noting in that definition is that submission is something that we engage in willingly. Wilkin, in her definition, points that out, and, and it's likely based on Peter's admonition in verse 16. To live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The Bible affirms time and again that as Christians, we are free. For example, in Galatians 5.1, we read, For freedom Christ has set us free. And Jesus himself affirms in John 8.36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So again, Christians are free. But the biblical view of freedom, the Christian view of freedom, is more nuanced than the view of freedom that we typically hear put forward in our culture. According to the philosopher James Smith, freedom in modern Western cultures is primarily seen as freedom from. He writes, freedom means hands off. I've got this. I know what I want. He sounds like a philosopher, doesn't he? (laughs) I'll know when I'm free when I get to decide what's good for me. When every choice is a blank check of opportunity and possibility. Now, he points out that this view of freedom has been enshrined by the American Supreme Court in Justice Anthony Kennedy's 1992 majority opinion in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, in which Kennedy writes, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the, of, of the meaning of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The Christian view of freedom is quite different from that. There is an aspect of freedom from for the Christian. Christians are freed from the power of sin. We are freed from the condemnation of the law. We are freed from the fear of death. Those are big things. But for the Christian, freedom should also be seen as freedom to. I am now free to love my neighbor without the pressure of self-justification. I am now free to love and serve God, to fulfill my created purpose in ways that I wasn't previously. And this is just as important in many respects as freedom from various restrictions. Why? Because as human beings, there is a reality to our nature that cannot and should not be ignored. Excuse me, that cannot and should not be ignored. So let's, for a minute, revisit our anthropomorphic fish. And you're thinking, yes, please, let's. So in the the cheesy parable I told at the beginning of the sermon, there were two fish that did not know what water was. So let's imagine that these fish learn what water is, and in fact, what the absence of water is, that they learn about air and about uh, land and animals that live on the land. And let's say one of these fish decides, I'm going to live on the land. He he is using Kennedy's uh, definition of freedom and saying, I'm going to define my own existence and I'm going to become a land fish. I want to see zebras and elephants. Well, if this fish gets his wish, I wasn't wasn't trying to rhyme, but there it happened. If this fish gets his wish and he gets himself up on the land somehow, what will that fish be free to do? Thank you. He will be free to die. He'll be free to flop around for a little bit enjoy a very short existence, and then ultimately die. Does that sound like freedom in any sort of meaningful sense? No. There is a reality to his nature. A fish was made for water. 
And that reality should not be ignored. Friends, similarly, as human beings created in the image of God, there is a reality to our nature. We were made to know God, to love him, to serve him. And when we ignore that reality to our nature, we don't experience real freedom. Freedom cannot be defined merely in in negative terms. In fact, we find our truest and our greatest freedom by submitting to God. And this is the view put forward in verse 16. Once again, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We are free servants of God. We are free to submit. So again, as Jen Wilkin puts it, we are free to willingly set aside our own desires or needs to honor the desires or needs of another. And because this is an activity that we engage in freely, it means that we shouldn't see submission as, so I'm going to point out two things, it is not powerlessness. Christian submission is not about power dynamics. We don't submit because we don't have the power to do otherwise. This would make the command to submit meaningless. If you didn't have a choice in the matter, there would be no point in issuing the command. It would be like a command to breathe. Like, well, I I have to do that. It's a choice that we make. It is not simply about power dynamics. Additionally, Christian submission is not about weakness. Instead, it's meekness, which can be defined as strength under control. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty nine describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. And that word gentle is the same word translated as meek in Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So Jesus describes himself as meek, but was he weak? Absolutely not. As Paul declares in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus had the power to bring the universe into existence, and yet he was willing to set aside all of this so that he might come to serve rather than to be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is not a weak act. Submission is not weakness. Submission is not powerlessness. Instead, it is a willing choice to set aside your own desires or needs to honor the desires or needs of another. The question then becomes... To whom do we submit? Well, the startling answer in verse 13 is every human institution. How many of you are very uncomfortable with that answer? I too am relatively uncomfortable with that. But I think we are more uncomfortable than most people throughout history. Do you want to know why? It's because we're weird Um, I'm saying that as an acronym. Let me explain. In 2010, there were three cultural psychologists who published an article in which they described our society using the acronym WEIRD, 
which means Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And for many generations now, people from weird societies have been conditioned to be skeptical of authority. We've been conditioned to value individual choice and a sense of autonomy above almost everything else. How do you know if you're weird? This is going to sound like you might be a redneck joke. You might be weird if you see a giant chasm between the words can and must. You can submit to authority versus you must submit to authority. You can follow me versus you must follow me. You can believe these things versus you must believe these things. If the latter portion of those last few sentences make your skin crawl, you might be weird. You might be overvaluing your autonomy. You might be leaning into the more shallow view of human freedom that's put forward by our, by our culture as simply the freedom from, right, or the absence of restrictions. Jonathan Haidt, who's a moral psychologist, said in one of his books that he discovered that his son Max, um, who at, at the time that he was writing this, his son was three, he discovered that his son Max was allergic to the word must. Um, he said when he would tell him that he had to or that he must get ready for school, and apparently Max, as a three-year-old, loved school, he would hear that command and he would scowl and he would complain. And Hate writes, the word must is a little verbal handcuff that triggered in him the desire to squirm free. He says the word can is so much nicer. Can you get dressed so that we can go to school? Hate, in order to be certain that the two words were really night and day, conducted a little, uh, little experiment. He said after dinner one night, he told his son, Max, Max, you must eat ice cream now. Max did not want to eat ice cream. Well, a few seconds later, he, he went back to Max and he said, Max, you can have some ice cream if you want. And Max jumped all over it. Friends, we are swimming in anti-authoritarian waters and that shapes us. And while we don't want to blindly follow authority figures simply because they are authority figures, we don't want to be so committed to autonomy that we devolve into chaos. So the reality is that no matter how uncomfortable it might make us, we need authority. Because without it, it would be impossible for us to accomplish anything. What would a company be able to do without a CEO? Probably not much. Can you imagine a professional basketball game without a referee? Just about every game would likely devolve into a fist fight. What would a group of musicians do if they didn't have a, com- a conductor or a band leader? And imagine if for our next several songs, our musicians decided, okay, we'll play the same song, but we're all going to play in different keys. I get to choose my key. It might be interesting, probably wouldn't be enjoyable to listen to, and it would be all but impossible to sing along with. God has established various institutions and he has endowed them with authority for our good. And so these are our marching orders. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. 
honor the emperor. So once again, God is calling us to willingly set aside our own desires and needs for the desires and needs of others. We are called in every facet of life in which we find ourselves to look around for opportunities to serve, to use our God-given freedom to submit. The Christian life in many ways is a life of submission. And in the verses we're looking at today, after, after giving us this blanket statement, this command to submit to every human institution, Peter looks at two particular facets of life. One is political. Now, Peter is writing to Christians in the Roman Empire during, during the reign of Nero. Now, to say that Nero wasn't kind to Christians would be just an amazing understatement. He actively persecuted and tortured Christians in the most gruesome ways. But what is Peter's command? For the Lord's sake, we are to honor the emperor. Now, this doesn't mean that we do everything that we're commanded to do by the state. If we are called to do something that goes against a command of God or is outright immoral, then we can and we should resist. With love and respect, there is a place for Christian civil disobedience. And Christians have done this throughout church history. In fact, we see Peter, the writer of this letter, doing just that in Acts chapter 4 and 5. There we read how the authorities arrested the disciples for preaching, summoned them before the Sanhedrin, and ordered them to not teach any longer in the name of Jesus. And what did the disciples do as soon as they were released? They began teaching in the name of Jesus. They are arrested again, and in Acts 5.28, the high priest scolds the disciples, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. There are times for resistance But these times should not be taken lightly, and they should have gospel motives, not self-interested ones. But in general, God calls us to submit, to do good, to seek the welfare of the city, to honor the emperor. And what does that look like now? Well, I think it in part means that we don't constantly complain about those in authority over us. I think it means that we do our best to be respectful, not feeling the need to point out, well, I I didn't vote for this guy. Or if we did vote for the guy, not being consumed by the ways in which he is failing or she is failing to live up to our expectations. Representative democracy is an incredible gift, but our tendency is to flip this command on its head, expecting the governing authorities to submit to us. Voting is a, tremendous, is a tremendous gift. We get a voice. We should exercise that voice. But it doesn't give us license to ignore the commands of God to honor those in authority over us. And we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that when we submit, we are entrusting ourselves ultimately to God and not to a mere human institution. We submit for Him. We submit for the Lord's sake For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
So that is one facet of life that Peter touches on. He, he tells us how we ought to engage politically. The other facet of life that Peter touches on in these verses is vocational. We see this in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. All right, now before we dig too deeply into this, uh, something uh, ought to be addressed. See, these instructions are to enslaved people at a time and in a culture that assumed that slavery was normal and in which at least one person in three would have been enslaved. Now, it is hard to hear these texts without thinking of our North American history and context, but it's important to recognize that they're not the same, that first century slavery and what we experienced in North America are completely different. For one thing, slavery at the time was not based on race. There weren't groups of people who were who are born into or assumed to be uh, slaves because of their ethnic backgrounds. Secondly, it wasn't a permanent institution. Uh, People typically weren't slaves for their entire lives. Slaves could be educated and often had the opportunities to buy back their freedom. But sometimes it's argued that because of these texts, which acknowledge the institution of slavery, that the biblical authors supported slavery. But while we see here and in the writings of Paul instructions to enslaved peoples who formed a significant part of the early church about how to live well for Jesus in their situation, the idea that the biblical authors supported slavery falls apart in several places. I'm going to point out two key texts. Uh, One is Paul's letter to Philemon, where Paul calls an enslaved man Onesimus his Uh, his child, as we see in verse 10, and his very heart. Paul Paul then urges Onesimus' former master to welcome him back, no longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother, to receive him as he would receive Paul. That letter totally upends the master-slave relationship. And then in Paul's letter to Timothy, we see a clear condemnation of the very sin on which American chattel slavery was based. Paul's catalog of sinful practices in 1 Timothy 8 through 10 is built on the Ten Commandments of Exodus 20. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, pairs with those who strike their fathers and mothers. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder, pairs with murderers. Uh, The seventh commandment, You shall not commit adultery pairs with both the sexually immoral and men who practice homosexuality. And the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, pairs with enslavers. Stealing human beings to enslave them is the worst kind of stealing, and it was punishable by death under the Old Testament law. In Exodus 21, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. There is no doubt from his writings that if Paul had witnessed the race-based, man-stealing, chattel slavery practiced by self-identifying Christians in America, he would have condemned it outright. There is no biblical support for the practice. So while we bring our North American uh, context into this text, in reality, Peter is writing about something very different. 
A closer modern-day parallel might be someone who received their college education for free but with the expectation for military service for several years afterwards. Another parallel might be a medical school, uh, medical school resident who receives a wage but is nonetheless owned by the institution uh, who has agreed to pay for their training. These modern-day examples are much closer parallels to what uh, Peter is talking about here than what we think of as slavery. All right, so these servants are to be subject to their masters with all respect, even to those, we're told in verse 18, who are unjust. Now, the word unjust can be more literally, literally rendered those who are crooked, those who cheat. These are masters who cook the books. And Peter essentially says, do you have an employer like that? Well, do them all the good you can even if it leads to suffering. And Peter explains, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Okay, so we've been up up here for a little bit. (laughs) So what does this actually mean? Well, in this text, Peter is telling us that in the various spheres of life, right, we see here explicitly named political and vocational, and Peter extends this principle into the family in, verse, in the verses that follow, saying in the various spheres of life, Christians ought to be characterized by graciousness and a willingness to set aside our own needs and desires for the needs and the desires of others. And we're told here that that's the case even when those others aren't treating us particularly well. So right now, I I encourage you to do a little internal evaluation. Do you willingly set aside your own needs and desires to honor the needs and desires of others? Or are you more inclined to insist on your own way? Do you have to run the show? Well, friends, in many respects, the Christian life is upside down. According to Jesus, the last are first. The least are of the utmost importance. You lead by serving. You find your life by losing it. And I think what's so encouraging is that these aren't commands that are simply leveled to us or brought down to us from on high. No, these are the things that Jesus himself embodied. As Peter goes on to explain, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus shows us both what leadership and submission look like. And for the Christian, they look pretty similar. And I think it is, again, so powerful that he isn't calling us something, calling us to something that he himself wasn't willing to do. And that reality ought to shape the way in which we experience difficulties in the present. See, when we're treated unfairly, when submitting feels like it's the last thing in the world that we want to do, we can look up 
and remind ourselves that this is what Jesus did in order to save the world. Submission, therefore, can't be powerlessness. It can't be weakness. And what are we doing when we submit? We, like Jesus, are entrusting ourselves to God. Jesus is our example, and we are called to follow in his steps. Thankfully, though, Jesus isn't just our example. He is so much more. See, if the message of the gospel is, hey guys, this is how you should act, now go do it. It might be inspiring at certain points, but that would not be good news. Why? Because we're not Jesus, and we can't be. Examples can sometimes cut both ways. You know, on one hand, they can sometimes be inspiring, but on the other hand, oftentimes examples are discouraging. Um, I'm going to use a trivial sports illustration. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a guy on my baseball team. His name was Jose, and he might have been the laziest person on our team. But he was the best person, not just on our team, but the best person in the league. He went on to play professional baseball. I think he's still playing uh, for a professional team down in Mexico. I, on the other hand, worked really hard. Uh, I, I spent tons of time doing extra conditioning, and I was constantly in the weight room. And by the time I was a junior in high school, it was my last year playing with Jose. I was, I was a big kid, which I'm sure comes as a shock. Uh, I was 6'4 and 235 pounds. I was, I was a big guy. And as a result, I could hit the ball a really long way. And there'd be times during uh, batting practices where I'd not try to show off, and I'd hit the ball as far as I could. And I would feel good about myself until Jose let's step up. And it was like a man among boys. Jose was, he was was a big kid too, but he was significantly smaller than me, yet somehow he could just hit these moonshots. And instead of being inspired, like, oh my goodness, I want to be like Jose, I was like, I should just quit. Because clearly no amount of hard work is going to get me to his level. And that was the reality. I was never going to be as good as him, no matter how much hard work I put into it. If the Christian call is simply to be like Jesus, and that's how we found our our status, that's how we found our salvation, oh my goodness, we should just quit. Look at the description of Jesus here on these verses. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He is our example. The text explicitly calls that out. But if he were just that, we'd just have to give up. But friends, he is so much more. As this passage goes on to tell us, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, Jesus isn't just our example. He is our Savior. By his wounds, you have been healed. And his work and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit actually gives us the power that we need to die to sin and to live to righteousness. It gives us what we need in order to submit in the way that we're being called to here. 
And I appreciate the reminder in verse 25 of who Jesus is. See, we have rulers and we have bosses that get to tell us what to do. They have a degree of control over our physical lives, over our bodies. But there's only one shepherd and overseer of our souls. And we don't need to be afraid to entrust ourselves to him, to the one who is willing to bear our sins in his body on the tree. He has taken care of our deepest need, making it so that we can willingly set aside our own desires and needs for the desires and needs of others. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you this morning for your word, even where it challenges us. Lord, I, I confess my own desire to want to do things my way. Lord, I pray that you would help me by your spirit to submit, to submit to you and to the authority figures that you have placed in my life. And Father, I pray that for all of us. I ask that by our witness, by our willingness to trust you in the very spheres of life in which we're placed. God, I I pray that people would see that and give glory to you. Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you. God, I pray, I thank you for the gift of Jesus, our true shepherd, the only overseer of our souls. Father, I thank you for his example. But most importantly, God, I thank you for the reality that by his wounds we have been healed. That we're not saved by our ability to do what he did, because Lord, we can't. We thank you for the reality that we are saved by grace through his finished work. Father, help us to trust in that work. Help us to have faith. Increase it where it's lacking. We love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.